0: Amen. Go ahead and take your seats. Good morning. It is wonderful to be with you. You can grab your Bibles while you're taking your seats and open up to Philippians chapter 2. That's where we're going to spend some time together this morning. And uh, it it has been uh, just really, really wonderful just to be here with you guys already, the first service, and now with you all, just really, really encouraging to my own soul. Um, I want to begin by just letting you know I bring greetings and um, air pollution warnings from the north. Uh, I'm kidding, it's actually been a great week, hasn't it? Last week was horrible, but I got here last week, it was awful, so I called our Prime Minister and I said, listen, Justin, you need to fix this problem, because it's awful, and he did. He listened to me, it was amazing. I'm just kidding, but uh, it is is—it's really sweet to be with you. We had a great time this past week, as, as your pastor Brian uh, mentioned, with his family and just being so encouraged and so thankful for the relationships that God has given us in life and in ministry and uh, and their sweet family, Brian and his wife Amy and their, their precious children have been, just been such a gift to our family, especially this week as we have just got to be refreshed um, just being around them. They have uh, an infectious love for the Lord and uh, and they're the real deal, and we just, we so love them and appreciate them for how much not only they've loved on us, but how much they love Jesus. And I, I want to just begin by asking you a question uh, related to Jesus and related to the gospel. Um, if, if somebody was to ask you why Jesus came um, from heaven to earth, what would your answer be? Or if I can frame it another way, you know, for what reason or purpose did Jesus come from heaven to earth? What would you what would you maybe the top 3 things that come to your mind what what would you say to that question, I think the, the honest truth is we could answer that question in a number of different ways, right? I mean, it's not just one simple answer. The reason Jesus came is multifaceted. Uh, he came from heaven to earth not only to defeat sin and death and Satan, which he did. Uh, he came to redeem people like you and me. That's the the greatest reason we could potentially argue our redemption, the salvation of our souls. And, and as a result, when Jesus comes, he gives to us. So many blessings. They're, they're innumerable. And yet I think at times we, we think of the gospel and Jesus coming for us in ways that are true, but are limited in their scope. And I think oftentimes when we think about the gospel, we can begin to kind of think like this, sometimes without even realizing it, we begin to think of the gospel in a kind of utilitarian way, meaning that we kind of just look at the benefits of Jesus. Here's how Jesus benefits me. Here's why he came to do this for me, to give me these things. And while there's some truth to that, listen, I think sometimes we can maybe unintentionally slip into really believing that Jesus exists for us instead of remembering that we exist for him. And I think we actually miss the end goal, the end point The real reason for which Jesus came, and I want to give it to you like this. Here's the kind of big idea of this sermon. I'll I'll say it like this. The end goal of the incarnation, that is a fancy theological term for God coming to earth and taking on the form of a man in Jesus Christ. The end goal of the incarnation is our ongoing adoration that is the whole reason that we have been created it is ultimately about our worship and adoration of god in fact the 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 shorter the westminster shorter catechism of faith asks this question at the very beginning what is the chief end of man and it answers it like this the chief end of man is to glorify god and enjoy him forever and i think that's a, a, what i mean when i say our end goal is adoration. We were created to know God, to love God, to glorify God and to enjoy an eternal relationship with God. And that is to be the, the end goal of our lives, and as such, it should be the guiding principle for our lives. And I want to kind of orient our hearts there, and that's what Paul does in this passage of Scripture. I want to read for us um, Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 all the way through 11, a very familiar text to many of us, but then I want to really focus in on verses 9 through 11. So follow along with me, beginning in verse 5, the Apostle Paul writes these words. He says, "'Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus.'" God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Father, what a powerful, powerful text. We pray, God, that you would speak mightily to us in these moments. Spirit of God, we pray that you would illuminate your truth. Help us to behold the glory of Jesus Christ in new and fresh ways. And God, we pray that by your word and your spirit, as we look at the glory of Jesus, that we would be transformed from one degree of glory to the next. Help us, O oh Lord, now we pray to become greater worshipers of you, grow the affections of our heart for you. Help us to give you the proper adoration that is due your name in these moments and in our lives. We pray this now in the powerful and precious name of Jesus. Amen. So this idea that the end goal of the incarnation is actually to be our ongoing adoration, if this is true, then it is supposed to be the guiding principle of our lives. And therefore, it must be something we intentionally cultivate in our lives. In other words, it's not going to happen by accident. There are things that we must do in order for this to become the ongoing reality for us. So the question I want to answer is, well, how do we do this? I want to give you three ways that we cultivate this kind of adoration in our lives. First, I cultivate adoration when I determine his universal position. Now, what Paul does in this section of Scripture is is actually really helpful. I don't know if you caught this, but he really is summarizing the gospel message for us, isn't he? It's, It's kind of really short and really punchy, but that's exactly what he's doing. And he begins at the most logical starting point with the Incarnation. The gospel begins with God looking down upon us sinners, having mercy upon us, loving us enough, as John 3.16 says, to come down from heaven to earth. That's the incarnation. But he doesn't stop there. He points out for us, again, the life of Jesus. Jesus lives this perfect, righteous life of obedience to the Father. Never sins, but his obedience culminates in one central place at the cross. He's obedient, notice what Paul says, even to the point of death and death on a cross. He takes upon himself the curse of sin for all of humanity. And then here's the reality. When many of us think of the gospel, that's actually where we, we stop. When somebody asks us to describe the gospel, we'll often tell them what the gospel is. You know, uh, Jesus loves us and, and God came from heaven to earth and he died on the cross, right, to pay for our sins. He, he took our penalty. What we deserved. he took upon himself. And that is all right and true and beautiful. But the gospel doesn't stop there. In fact, what Paul kind of implies here is that there is, there is more to the story. He implies the resurrection. And isn't that the most beautiful part of the gospel? It's not that Jesus just took our sins and died. He conquered sin, death, and Satan, and rose from the grave. Our Savior is not a dead Savior. He's alive. Amen? And that's the beauty of the gospel. But the capstone of the gospel actually goes beyond that. And so what Paul is doing is he's, he's actually helping us to actually press deeper into the gospel reality in our own lives. And he's saying, listen, don't just go from incarnation to crucifixion to resurrection. Move past that. And what he puts before us is this. There is an ascension that takes place. So Jesus rises from the grave, but then he ascends on high. And he's actually seated at the right hand of the Father where he is exalted in majesty and glory. And that is the gospel. He is elevated, in other words, to this position over the universe. And when we understand this, it actually begins to drive the trajectory of our lives. Paul uses a word, I want you to look at verse 9 with me, that's really significant for our understanding of this. He says, therefore, by the way, again, connecting it to the incarnation, therefore, God has highly exalted. Now, if if you mark up your Bibles, if you highlight or underline, I would encourage you to circle those two words, highly exalted. Now, here's why. This here is actually one word in the original Greek. And it's a word that is not used anywhere else in the New Testament. So what Paul is doing is he's giving us a significant word, a unique word. And the word here means something like this, uh, super exalted, hyper exalted, uh, elevated to a position superior than anyone else in the entire universe, and it's reserved for only one person, It's a unique word for a unique person who is seated in a unique position. And this word stresses the incomparable transcendence and absolute majesty of Christ. He is, in other words, in a class all by himself. And and listen, what I want to say to you, you got to catch this. In order to determine that this is true, you have to first discover that it is true. In other words, you don't make it true. You see that it is already true. And that universal position of authority is actually then further elaborated upon or explained in this next statement. Look again at verse nine. It says that God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Now, that statement begs the question, what is the name? What's the name that has been bestowed on him that is above every other name? Now, if I was to throw that question out, just think in your mind, what would you answer? I think most of us would answer with the name Jesus, correct? But here's the reality. That's, that's not the name that Paul is talking about here. You see, the name Jesus was the name that was bestowed upon him not at his exaltation, but at his incarnation. It was the name given to him at his birth. So here, Paul is actually identifying a name that is attached to the name of Jesus. And I'll give you a bit of a spoiler alert. There's a culmination, a building in these three verses, and we don't find out the name until verse 11, but here's the name, I'll give it to you because I know you can read ahead already, so I'll just tell you, okay? It is the name Lord Because no other name signifies a position of authority and superiority like the name Lord. And we'll dig this out a little bit as we mine our way through this text. But just notice that that is exactly what Paul is pointing us towards. Now, in the first century, a large portion of the Apostle Paul's audience would have been Jewish people. And, and what Paul is actually saying here would be something that conflicts greatly with Jewish thinking. And we see this often. Um, if you look at other monotheistic religions, uh, what, what they'll tell you is that there is only one superior uh, individual or name that is above everything else. And every, you know, you think of it, Jehovah's Witness, Mormons, uh, whether it's Judaism or Islam, what they're going to say is the name God, right? And so right here, we see Paul is actually conflicting with some of the, the Jewish worldview. And here's why this is significant for us. Um, commentator and, and scholar Richard Bauckham, he, he, he helps us understand this. Here, I'll put this quote on the screen for you. Here's what he says. He says, for Jewish monotheism, that is the belief in, in one God only, sovereignty over all things was definitive, listen to this, of who God is. It could not be seen as delegated to a being other than God. Angels might carry out God's will as servants subject to his command in limited areas of his rule, but God's universal sovereignty itself was intrinsic to the unique divine identity as sole creator and ruler of all. So you see, what Paul says needs to be understood as referring to this kind of a position, a position of absolute, recognizable superiority and sovereign rule over all creation. Now, I don't know about you guys, in Canada, we have this very important ongoing debate. And so what I would like to do is, I'm in America, you guys... Think, I think you guys know what you're talking about more than us Canadians. We're wishy-washy. We flip-flop. You guys are definitive, right? So you're, we're going to just do a little vote right now, um, and this is very important, okay? What we decide here is going to be determined. I'm bringing this back to Canada. I'm going to inform them that we decided, okay? So the debate is this. This is serious, okay? Who is the greatest basketball player of all time? It's not that, don't take it that seriously, okay? So this is, this is an ongoing debate. I think you have the same debate, so we're going to settle this by a show of hands, okay? How many of you in here believe that LeBron James is the greatest basketball player of all times? This is a unified church. <laughs> How many of you believe that Michael Jordan is the greatest basketball player of all times? Okay, that's pretty... Anybody in here think that there's somebody else in the, comp, like in the running for it? Like there's something you believe there's somebody else. Yeah, you got one hand back there. We'll pray for you. It's okay. It's, okay, at least one. That's great. But see, my my point is that I'm glad one person put their hand up because my point is this: like there are some questions about people being the greatest that are debatable, right? You you can present cases and evidence. You know you know you you can kind of battle it out, and fight over who you think is the greatest. But what Paul is telling us is, listen, when you line Jesus up against every other person, every other lowercase g, G, God in the universe, no one even comes close. There's no debate. There's no comparison. He is unequaled. He is unrivaled. He is unparalleled in his superiority, in his authority, in his majesty. There's no one who comes close. Now, the real question is this. Listen, that, that... This is really important. That is objectively true whether you believe it or not. But listen, listen. Here's what I want to ask you today. Is that true in your own life? Have you discovered it to be objectively true and have you decided and determined that it will be true for you? Or, or listen, or... Is that a debatable question in your life right now? Are there competing rulers in your life? Are there things or people or objectives that are ruling your heart and competing with the rule and kingship and lordship of Jesus Christ in your life? You say, well, I, I don't know. Like what, how would I determine that? Because what you need to see is that Jesus is not looking to be second place in your life. Jesus is looking to be first over everything and first in everything, and yet all the time we feel this battle within us, don't we? There's this wrestling match, there's tension, and sometimes we feel like, yes, I'm serving Jesus, he's my Lord, and then other days, literally the next day, it could be like, man, I've got so many other idols of my heart that are seemingly taking control of my life. Let me just give you three ways you can kind of test your own heart, and these are pretty common ways. It's often been said that you can determine the idols of your heart by looking in three Three particular areas. Not an exhaustive list, but they're really helpful. Check out your time, your talents, and your treasure. I mean, you can often see, right, what rules your life, what has priority or superiority in your life simply by looking at your calendar, look at your schedule, look at how you spend your time. You would not believe the amount of Christians I talk to when I talk to them, like, tell me about your time with the Lord. You want to know what they tell me? I'm just too busy. I don't have enough time to, to be with the Lord, to focus on the things. My life is just, just too busy. Listen, I, here's my, my, my kind of cliche response. If you're too busy for the Lord, you're too busy. But your, your time will often tell you what is most important to you, your talents. How, how do you use the gifts and the abilities that the Lord has given to you? Because God has given each of you um, a multitude of gifts and abilities, and He wants you to use them in this world in a variety of different ways. But are you using your talents and your abilities and your gifts in a way that furthers the kingdom of God in this world? To serve the church, the body of Christ, to minister to those in need, to preach the good news. What about your treasure? You can't, you can't love God and, and mammon, right? You can't, you can't have two masters. You can't serve two masters. And so many of us in our culture, we're addicted, aren't we? To materialism and to money and possessions. And, and they, you know, they just grip our life and they grip our heart. And we just, we're consumers. Test your own heart. Determine who is Sovereign. You know, the reality is this, it's, it's a real conscious recognition and decision that will eventually translate into action. That's how you really know who's got a hold of your heart. You look at the way you live, there are visible ways you can tell if God is king of your heart. And so secondly, notice this, I cultivate adoration when I demonstrate my universal submission. Now this, this here is kind of the logical I think, flow of thought, right? If you have determined that God, Jesus, is the ultimate authority, then the only right natural response to that is our unquestioned submission. Look at what Paul says in verse 10. He says, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. Now that is a statement of submission if I ever heard one. A bowed knee demonstrates the recognition of authority and superiority and therefore your own inferiority. You bow as a servant of the king. To really understand the the force and the power of what Paul is saying here, this idea of bowing the knee, notice what he goes on to say, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. I mean, this is this universal picture of submission. But to really grasp the, the significance of what Paul is saying, you have to see what he's doing. You see, he's actually reaching back into the Old Testament and grabbing from the book of Isaiah, specifically Isaiah chapter 45. Now, this is a little, you'll kind of notice this. Some of your Bibles may actually have a, a, a little kind of notation there that lets you know that this is what Paul is doing. This is a really helpful Bible study tip. I hope you love, your word, love the Bible. I hope you love to study the Bible. Uh, and so I hope this is helpful for you. But oftentimes what you need to see is this. When the New Testament writers, uh, when they quote from or allude to the Old Testament, they're actually hoping that first you pick up on that. They hope hope you're seeing what they're doing because they're trying to weave together a bigger story of the Bible. But more than that, if you don't kind of see that or understand why, what they hope you'll do is go back to where they're quoting from to try to understand why they're pulling from that spot. What you'll find out oftentimes when when New Testament authors quote the Old Testament, they're not just quoting a, a section. They may be quoting some specific words, but what they want you to pay attention to is the broader context. And what you'll find out, if you get good at this and go back and study these sections that are being quoted, you'll see that they're so often so much richer, deeper, more complex, more just loaded with meaning and importance than you ever even imagined. And that's what Paul's doing here. You see, if you go back to the book of Isaiah, all the way from chapter 41 up to 45, Isaiah is establishing the superiority of the God of Israel over all the gods of the earth. And the divine name for God in the Old Testament, the personal name that's often used, is the name Yahweh. And so in chapters 41 through 45, let me just give you a quick sampling. Listen to how Isaiah builds this case for the supremacy of Yahweh in the Old Testament here. In chapter 41, verse 13, he says, I am the Lord, Yahweh, your God. In chapter 42, verse 8, he says, I am the Lord, that is my name. 42, verse 8, or sorry, sorry, 43, verse 11, I, even I, am the Lord, and apart from me, there is no Savior. 44, verse 6, this is what the Lord says, Israel's King and Redeemer, the Lord Almighty, I am the first and the last. Sound familiar? Apart from me, there is no God. And then four times in Isaiah 45, the Lord declares his absolute sovereignty. Three times he says this, I am the Lord and there is no other. And then one time he says, for I am God using a different Hebrew word for God and there is no other. And then listen, in this final fourth declaration of the sovereignty of God, he then gives this call for total and complete allegiance. Listen to what he says. It'll be on the screen. Verses 22 and 23. He says, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn. From my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. What is this word? Here it is. To me. Every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. And when you read the words, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess, here's what you need to hear Paul saying. This is about submission and allegiance to God. Notice that he says every knee. This is universal in nature. Every knee in heaven and on earth and under the earth. You see, what is, what is Paul talking about? Well, well, here he's referring to every rational being in the universe. In heaven signifies angelic beings and the dead in Christ. On earth designates living human beings. And under the earth refers to dead human beings who have died apart from Christ's saving work. And it also refers to, interestingly, fallen spirits, demonic spirits. Now, we often read this, this verse, you know, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess, as if it's something that's entirely positive. You know what I mean? Like, we read this as if it's a statement of devotion And while that is embedded in here, that actually is a very limited way to read this verse. The context actually is telling us this is not primarily a a a statement of devotion. It's a statement of confession and recognition. And here's why this is important, because th- this just adds to us a weightiness and an urgency. This means that some, and I trust, I trust this is true of you who are sitting here today, some will bow the knee in humble, joyful submission to the King of kings and Lord of lords. And you'll do so knowing the truth of the gospel and the beauty of the gospel that God came from heaven to earth because he loved you, he had mercy on you, and he showed kindness to you that led you to repentance and faith. But listen, this also means, it means that many, will one day bow the knee, regardless of their spiritual state, regardless of how prideful, how stubborn, how hard-hearted, how rebellious they are, they will one day bow the knee with begrudging regret and shame. There's a day coming when Jesus Christ King of kings and Lord of lords will return at the sound of a trumpet on a cloud in blazing glory. And on that day, listen, the weight of his glory will descend upon every rational being and every being will feel the weight of that glory and they will buckle down to their knees in confession of who Jesus is. They will see it. They will believe it. They will declare it. We get the privilege, if if you're here today and you're in Christ, you just need to understand how great of a privilege this is. You get the privilege of doing this here and now. And that's the only question that matters. Will, Will you be one who will bow the knee here and now in joyful submission or will you be one who will bow the knee later and shameful regret. What kind of submission will characterize your life and your eternity? You know, one one of the awesome realities for us, if you're in Christ today and you know the joy of, of salvation. Yeah, I, I, love, I love the songs we got to sing together this morning and just the reminder of, of who Christ is and his power, his authority, his dominion. You know, when we get together, and Lauren really helped us think about we're declaring these truths right to, to one another, to God, into our own hearts. But there's there's something profound that I want to add to this idea. When we gather together as, as believers, we're declaring. Uh, together, our submission to Jesus. We're declaring, Jesus, you are Lord, you are King, you're King of my life, you're King of this church, I am submitted to you, I will worship and adore you and you alone, but there's something else we're declaring. We're actually declaring this, listen, we're declaring this with anticipation that one day all the universe will join in that chorus. Everybody will declare this to be true. What a privilege we have to do that together on Sundays corporately. But this joyful submission is something that should be evident, not just on Sunday mornings as we gather together, it should be evident in our lives on a daily basis. Submission should be something that's visible in your life, something that you intentionally cultivate in your life. So I just want to give you three quick ways to do that um, every day. Three ways to daily bow the knee to demonstrate submission. Here's the first way. The first way is to hallow the Lord. Now, that's not a word we use often, but it is a word that our Savior used, didn't he? And his disciples, they came to him one day and they said, they said, Jesus, Lord, would you teach us how to pray? And he began by saying this, our Father, which by the way, who is in heaven, statement of his superiority, and then he follows it with this, hallowed be your name. That The word hallowed simply means to consecrate, to treat as holy. And so right out the gates, let me just give you something practical. Every day you wake up, this is about your heart. This is about submitting your heart. This is about preaching the gospel to your own heart. One of the things you can do is roll out of your bed onto your knees in submission to God. Maybe even that visible physical act will remind your heart of the posture you are taking that day. And and you can pray to God, God, you're in heaven. You are highly exalted above all. Hallowed be your name. You are holy. You are worthy of all my submission. You are worthy of all my praise. And today, God, you are my king and I will live for you. Begin every day like that. Remind your heart of who is king. Second thing you can do is hear the Lord. Hear the Lord. Jesus also said, my sheep, hear my voice. You say, well, well, how do we hear the Lord? Well, well, that's the awesome truth of who our God is. Our God is a God who speaks, right? And he, how does he speak to us? Well, he, he, it's right here. He speaks to us through his word. Um, you can kind of think of the, the kind of double-sided coin of this is that um, through prayer, we speak to God, and through his word, he speaks to us. So God, by his spirit, speaks to us through his word, and we need to be a people who hear the voice of God coming to us through the pages of scripture, and we need to believe that this here, this is God speaking to us. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. You're like, well, okay, but it would be really great to hear God speak audibly to me. It would be way more helpful, and I agree with you. So here's the solution. Just read the Bible out loud. Okay, We must be a people who believe God is the king and who love to hear him speak to us. We need to saturate our lives with the word of God. We need to read it, study it, memorize it, meditate upon it day and night so we can be like those trees as Psalm once has planted, you know, bearing much fruit in their season, leaves that do not wither. We need to be people who, who are strong and robust, faithful Christians, but we cannot do that apart from submitting to God by hearing his word and letting it wash over us. There's way too many competing voices that we're getting in this world, isn't there? Let's let the word of God take priority in our lives. Finally, you can do this, heed the Lord. Heed the Lord. It's no good to hear the Lord if you're not willing to heed the Lord. You have to believe that the word of God is true, it is right, and it is best for you. You have to believe that God's ways are always better than your ways. You have to believe it, trust it, you have to then obey it. And that, by the way, is the greatest evidence that you love the Lord, isn't it? What did Jesus say? Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. We obey not to earn God's love, but because we've received God's love. And we obey as a response of love. are so three ways you can cultivate submission in your life, and here's what's going to happen. If you do that faithfully in your life, what's going to happen is that submission to God is actually going to grow your adoration for him. As you submit to him and you find that he is good and worthy and faithful and true, your love for him, your affection, your worship, your adoration is going to be abounding and that's then going to fuel greater submission. It's not a a linear line. It's cyclical and it works together hand in hand to grow you up in the faith. Finally, I cultivate adoration when I declare the universal confession. Paul here he, he ends this section so powerfully. Look at verse 11. It says, And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And what Paul does here is he gives us this statement that's really a a summary of the gospel here. It's really shorthand for the gospel. Jesus Christ is Lord. And here's here's why I say that, because you just have to break those words apart to understand the richness embedded there. Uh, Jesus, the name of Jesus, means God is salvation, Christ means Messiah or the anointed one. So in other words, you have this picture of God uh, who saves is the Messiah, the one who was promised early on in the pages of Scripture who would be the redeemer of all mankind and then add to that is Lord, is God. Here he is. God is savior of his people. God is the one who has come to redeem and really, this statement becomes our, our, our Christian confession, doesn't it? It's the, the statement, the umbrella, the mantra that unites God's people all over the globe. We believe Jesus is Lord. Now, that is the Christian mantra and confession, but the world has all kinds of competing mantras and confessions. It doesn't take you very long to see uh, who rules this world, does it? Inclusivity is Lord. Tolerance is Lord. Pride is Lord. Sex is Lord. Money is Lord. Power is Lord. I mean, on and on and on we could go, but if you take all of those confessions in our world, and if we're honest, sometimes even in our own heart, and you boil them all down to one mantra, one confession, the world's confession is simply this I am Lord and there is no other. And you see, it's Christians who stand in opposition to that mantra, to that rally cry, and we stand in defiance, in joyful defiance, and we declare, no, Jesus Christ is Lord. And that statement, it's a shadow an anticipation of what will ultimately be offered by all the universe soon and very soon, every tongue of every rational being in all creation will confess Jesus, Messiah, is Yahweh. Every believing heart, and I hope this is true of you, will shout it at the top of their lungs and sing it from the depth of their soul. And we, with the angels, will do it over and over and over again for all eternity. But like I said, what we see in this passage is not just a statement of devotion. It will one day be the statement of recognition for all who refuse to bow the knee to Jesus in this life. In fact, Isaiah 45 includes these statements, all who have raged against him, who will come to him and be put to shame. Every unbelieving heart will confess it too in shame-filled submission and despair. Caiaphas will confess it. Pilate will declare Jesus is Lord. Hitler will say it. Stalin will say it. Even Satan will do it. His name and his his knee and his tongue will not be excluded from this confession. And you know what? History is not like a, a treadmill that just keeps rolling over but goes nowhere. It's all moving towards that day. And sadly, on that day, when Jesus Christ returns in glory, it will be too late for many. But listen, listen, church, there's good news. <laughs> Here's the good news, okay? Jesus Christ has not yet returned, therefore, it's not too late to come to Jesus and bow the knee to him as Lord. Amen. And I would urge some of you here today, maybe you're hearing this, and, and you know Jesus is not Lord of your life. You may, maybe you prayed a prayer when you were young, or maybe you've just been living apart from Christ, and you know that Jesus is not your Lord. Can I, just, can I urge you today, it's not too late for you. It's not too late for you. God loves you so much that he sent his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. His arms are flung wide open to you today and you can come and bow the knee and confess to him that he is Lord of all. And for those of you who are saved, here's what I would say to you. This is, an, is supposed to fuel your adoration of God. This is supposed to take you to new depths of worship and affection for him. Why? Be, here's why. Because we know the only reason we have bowed the knee and made this confession that Jesus Christ is Lord is because of the mercy and grace of our great God. Amen? Amen not because we earned it or not because we deserved it, not because we did anything worthy of it, because he set his love upon us and rescued us from our sin. He sent his one and only son who died in our place, rose victoriously from the grave, conquered sin, Satan, and death, is exalted to the right hand of the father where he now rules and reigns on high. He gave us all the blessings in Christ Jesus. We are in him and it's all because of him. Our confession is Jesus Christ is Lord. Amen? Let me ask you, are you simply declaring that or confessing that in your heart and at church on Sundays? You see, this is not just supposed to fuel our adoration. It's supposed to fuel our mission. Charles Spurgeon, the great prince of preachers, he said that every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. he went on to to write these words if sinners will be damned at least let them leap to hell over our bodies and if they will perish let them perish with our arms about their knees imploring them to stay if hell must be filled at least let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let not one go there unwarned and unprayed for amen and amen amen that is the mission we've been given, church. And it's a mission that's not fueled by guilt. It's actually fueled by grace. It's fueled by our ongoing adoration of our Savior, the one who bled and died for us. Because we, we love only because he first loved us. Because our Lord calls us to go and we long to do what our Lord commands. What if, what if we this summer committed to just tell one person about Jesus a week, to share the gospel, and to pray fervently that God would open their hearts to believe the gospel and to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Why would we do that? Well, Paul tells us why we ought to do it. He ends in such a fitting way to the glory of God the Father. That is the greatest statement of adoration you will find in all the Bible. It is to the honor, to the glory of God the Father. For this is what the heart was made for. Every heart was made for this purpose. Every Christian was saved to this end to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. This is the the greatest statement of adoration. Nothing even comes close. It is our joyful confession Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The end goal of the incarnation is our ongoing adoration. May this desire fill our lives and may it pour forth from our lips this day and every day until we see his face in glory. Let's pray. God, we pray that that would be true. You are good and you are faithful. And you have given yourself for us to save us, to make us a people who know you and love you and live for you, a people whose lives are radically transformed, Lord, so that we no longer live for ourselves but for him who died and set us free. God, I pray right now you would be stirring our hearts with greater affection for the gospel, that we would see how great your love is for us, and Lord, that we would respond with a greater love for you. May the the truth of the incarnation lead us to a place of deeper adoration. God, would you fill our lives with the fruit of righteousness? lives of worship unto you. And now, Lord, even as we close our time together, would you fill our lips with praise, passionate praise for your name. Would it pour forth from our lips? Would it flow out of hearts, Lord, that are so grateful, so in awe of who you are? And may, Lord, it be pleasing, a fragrant aroma unto you. Receive our praise now, we pray, King of Kings, and Lord of lords, the one who is exalted over all. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.